This is the Read to Lead podcast, episode 430. We want to feel like we matter. We want a little bit of credit and recognition for the work that we do. And there's a a healthy part of that. I think that's just being human. But what can happen is we don't get that attention, that recognition that we feel like we deserve. This can lead us to some pretty unhealthy spaces. There's a message getting a lot of airtime these days. It says to be successful, you have to step into the spotlight, climb the ladder, become the boss or chase whatever version of success that's been dangled in front of you. But what if there's another way? What if fame, money, and power aren't all that we should be chasing? Hi, I'm Jeff Brown, and this is the Read to Lead podcast, the podcast dedicated to your personal and professional growth, where I believe that if you want true success in business and in life, that intentional and consistent reading is a must. Each and every week here on the podcast for nearly the last nine years. I've interviewed a successful and inspiring author to chat about their latest book and their unique insights on a number of different topics. Today, that author is Tim Shore. He's written a book called The Secret Society of Success. Stop chasing the spotlight and learn to enjoy your work and life again. I'm going to ask Tim to describe his take on how our brains have been trained to ignore information that's not written from a what's in it for me perspective and how it's affecting us. Some of the useful traits that a member of the Secret Society of Success might exhibit after struggling with the spotlight mindset himself for years, how Tim got to the point where he felt comfortable enough to lay it down, and lots more. You know, I've mentioned a couple of times the last few weeks this note-making mastery cohort that I'm leading, folks who want to get better at collecting notes, connecting new ideas with old ideas, Being able to find the notes they've collected over the years, that's a difficult thing for many of us to do. And then how to express themselves with the unique insights they've derived from the notes they've been collecting. That's all a part of the Note Making Mastery Cohort and much more. And you know what's great about this first group? They have promised every step of the way to give me their feedback. Why? So that it's even better for the next group. And that's a group I want you to be a part of. I'm collecting names right now to put on the notifications list for the next time I offer the note-making mastery cohort. If you want to be among the first notified when the next one comes around, which will be this fall, you can go to readtoleadpodcast.com slash list, and you'll be on that list to be notified first when the second cohort for note-making mastery is ready to go. And it will be even better than the first one because my founding members, a group of about 20 people, are ensuring that by giving me some awesome and incredible feedback. And it's all for you. It's going to make it even better when you participate. So again, go to readtoleadpodcast.com slash list right now to get your name on the notifications list for the next Note Making Mastery Cohort. Tim Shore knows what it takes to build a winning team. He spent almost a decade of his career launching two brands, Story Brand and Business Made Simple as COO, alongside New York Times bestselling author Donald Miller. Now, before that, Tim worked at Tom's as well as Apple Inc. He is the host of the Build a Winning Team podcast, where he offers actionable advice as he interviews some of the top leaders in business. And he's got a brand new book out. It is called The Secret Society of Success. Stop chasing the spotlight and learn to enjoy your work and life again. 
I've heard his name kicked around for years. I finally get a chance to sit down and talk with him and meet him. And you can too. Tim, welcome officially to the Read to Lead podcast. Oh, thank you so much. I'm pumped to be here. Well, I shared a little bit, but I want you to dive into a bit more about your background, what led you away from StoryBrand and working for for Donald Miller and this path that you're on to release your own book and and what you hope to happen from, from here on out. So about five years ago, I was at this event that Bob Goff hosted called Dream Big. Mm. And for the very first time, I said out loud when they went around the room and asked everybody, what's your big dream? I said out loud, I want to write a book. I didn't really know what I was saying (laughs) (laughs) because the journey to write a book is long and it it is something that I had never done before. I'd worked with Don and he had released books, but writing one is a very different experience. And so uh, I, I was fortunate to have a lot of friends who helped me navigate the path. And one step after another, I end up getting a book deal and you know, I released this book in May of 2022. And what's crazy about that journey is I never expected for it to launch me into a new career. I thought I was going to just write this book, but it's the thing I was doing early mornings and at night, it was a passion project. But mm. the closer I got to the release of the book, the more I realized, man, I if I'm going to do this well, and what that looks like is spending so much time launching my own podcasts mm. and uh, being on other people's podcasts and doing keynote presentations. And I was going to go all in if I was going to do it. And, and I don't like doing anything halfway. I, if I'm going to do it, I want to do it and, and give it everything that I've got. So there was a tension that I was living in because I couldn't do that really well and also keep up my job with you know Dawn and StoryBrand because I had a big job helping run the day-to-day of that business. So mm. I made this impossible decision. I, I walk away from a dream job to chase a new dream. So it's been a wild adventure the past few months settling into this new role, but uh, I've felt very fortunate to even have had the opportunity to write a book and now to be able to talk about it and let people know there is another way to define success than a lot of the cultural messages and the narratives that we're up against right now. That begs a question that I was going to ask later. I'm going to ask it now instead, because I think it's, uh, it's appropriate. You know, The subtitle of your book says, Stop Chasing the Spotlight. Uh, <laughs> and uh, you're arguably... <laughs> a walking contradiction in that sense. Now that you're you know, coming out with your own book, uh, you know, if, if, if someone comes to you and, and, and points that out or is thinking that right now, what, what would you respond with? Yeah. So what I talk about in the book is this thing that we are all up against that I call the spotlight mindset, this unhealthy desire for attention and recognition. And I think all of us are up against this because We want to feel like we matter. We want a little bit of credit and recognition for the work that we do. And there is a healthy part of that. I think that's just being human. But what can happen is if we don't get that, if we don't get that attention, that recognition that we feel like we deserve, this can lead us to some pretty unhealthy spaces. Mm. And so it's important for us to recognize that in our lives, where the spotlight mindset shows up so that we can keep from it becoming unhealthy and we can actually stay focused on doing our best work. And so the problem for me is not so much the, if you will, the 
the position of the spotlight, the person standing in the center of the stage, that is not really the problem. The problem is our mindset. Because a lot of the examples that I talk about in the book, people who have shown me this new way to define success, a new approach to life that isn't to be somebody who's constantly demanding attention and recognition, so many of the stories that I share, so many of the people that I've been inspired by are actually standing in the spotlight. You have Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple, and, and I'm sure we'll get to some of these stories because you know I've just learned so much from people like him or LeBron James. It's, it's less about these, the secret society of success, these people that I've been really inspired by. They are, are not so concerned about their position, the place on the org chart. It's more about their posture, how they show up. And if there's a common denominator for the people in the secret society, it's this idea of helping others win. And so whether we're in the spotlight or whether we're in a supporting position, we all can approach our life and our work from that place of what can I do to help somebody else win? So it is a little bit ironic that, you know, the subtitle is, you know, stop chasing the spotlight, you know, learn to enjoy your work and life again. Uh, and, and then for me to jump into a place where now I am, my, my name is on the front cover of a book. I'm standing on stages talking to people. But the thing that I am reminding myself of and the thing that I think is important for all of us is, are we doing this for the attention, the recognition, or can we use whatever place that we are sitting in, the role that we're in, to help other people navigate their challenges? And so I think if we step into it with a headspace like that, uh, we, we can't really go wrong. So uh, to kind of paraphrase that, we're, we're more broadening the definition of success. We're not lowering our expectations, in other words, right? <laughs> yeah. And I, I think so. Here's a, a story that I think will really help kind of frame some of this up. And you know, it's this story of Apollo 11 that I'm sure a lot of us are familiar with. You've got Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. But what a lot of people don't know, there's a third astronaut on that mission. And a lot of people don't know his name is Michael Collins. So here you have Michael Collins and the guy Ubers Neil and Buzz to the moon, drops them off. So those guys can do all the tasks that they have to do on the moon's surface while Michael actually stays back in the command module. And he orbits them in something like 26 times until those guys are ready to be picked up and brought back to earth. And you know the, the press was calling him the loneliest man on the planet because there's moments when he is on the dark side of the moon and loses mm. all connectivity to Houston. So every time he'd loop the moon, he's totally disconnected, right? Mm. So what makes what would make this a miserable story is if Michael were to get back, sit down with the press and say something like, well, it sure would have been nice to actually walk on the moon and, <laughs> you know, acted like a victim, tried to take the spotlight from the mission as a whole. But what I love so much about the story is that's not at all what happened. He sits down with the press and talks mm. about how content he was to have had one of those three seats. He was happy to be part of the mission. And for so many of us, we are told that success looks like stepping into the spotlight, climbing the ladder, being the boss, chasing fame and money and power. And for so many of us, because we haven't gotten clear about what our definition of success is, we are just 
subconsciously chasing this other version that's been set out in front of us. And so, so much of what I feel like we can do as we start to navigate what success actually is in our lives is what if success is being content with the seat that we have? You know, I think because, you know, I'm fresh off of writing this book, I've worked with several editors that have helped this book to become the best that it could be, Mm. to be really clearly written and, you know, free from errors. So a lot of people would look at an editor and say, well, for you to be successful, you have to be an author, right? But what Mm -hmm. if the editor is sitting there saying, but I love editing. Why do I have to chase trying to be an author to be successful? And I think that is found in so many of our roles. So I am, I'm kind of this guy saying, what if we actually were just content in the role that we have rather than feeling this pressure to constantly chase and strive? And so some could misinterpret that as saying, wait, so we shouldn't have ambition. We shouldn't strive for things. It's like, no, 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 no. What I'm saying is Michael Collins, for him to even have had one of those seats on that mission meant he was incredibly talented, Mm. best in class. He just didn't walk on the moon. So do we have to walk on the moon to be happy or can we define success for ourselves and find contentment in that? Whether that lands you in the spotlight or not, I don't think it matters as much as us getting really clear about what success is for us and then live according to that definition of success rather than just being so influenced by kind of what culture tells us success is. We're both just outside the Nashville, Tennessee area. How many songwriters are in this town that nobody knows the name of? but they know their songs exactly. <laughs> somebody yeah. else recorded them. You know, this weekend I'm going to be traveling to uh, do a workshop where I'll be talking to a group of uh, physicians uh, this go around about how to launch a podcast and a YouTube channel. These are physicians who are opening their own practices, firing the insurance companies and doing cash only businesses sort of thing. And uh, one of the things I talked to them about is this idea of understanding how to frame your content from a what's in it for me perspective yeah. with regard to the listener and the viewer. And, and that's at the heart of, of all the things that are marketed and sold to us. And, and that's how those things succeed. Describe your take on how our brains have been trained to ignore information that's not written from that perspective and how that's affecting us in this arena. So we are experiencing more than 5,000 commercial messages a day. Mm-hmm. Everywhere we look, we are being sold something. And so before we buy something as a consumer, the question that we're often asking is that exactly what you said, what's in it for me? Which is a pretty fair question because we want to know, is this worth me spending my money on? How is this thing going to make my life better, easier, whatever, right? So what's troublesome though, is because we are constantly asking this question without even realizing it. Again, we're experiencing 5,000 commercial messages a day. Our brains are being flooded with this. Okay, do I need this product? Okay, what's in it for me? You know, so without even thinking about it, this is in our headspace all the time. But that translates actually into other parts of our lives. And so I'm at this event in 2017 and I hear Andy Stanley speak. 
And this event is around finding your purpose. And you know, Andy goes on to say, these, what's in it for me? Why am I here? These are the wrong questions. I'm like, well, it seems like, a, again, it feels like a pretty fair question to ask, but he says, these are the wrong questions if we actually want to find our purpose. So the question instead to ask is this, who am I here for? And what I love so much about that question is it still allows us to bring our gifts, our skills, our abilities, bring everything that we've got, but it puts us into a headspace in a posture of helping somebody else win, of thinking of somebody else. And it's just not so common these days because of this world that we're living in that's just constantly asking what's in it for me. So I loved this new question so much that I actually got back to my office and created an eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper and really big up at the top, I write, who am I here for? And below it, I put the pictures and the names of every single person on my team and their families. Because on the days when I was just totally jam-packed with meetings, a task list that I never was going to be able to get through, those are the days I want to just beeline it to my desk, get my stuff done, keep my head down, focus on me, get my things done. It's on those days that I needed just that little reminder to have my antenna up for somebody on my team that maybe just needed me to be there for them. And so I just wanted to ask on those days, all right, Tim, who are we here for today? And when I thought about my team and I thought about the work then that I got to do that day, I wanted to be thinking of somebody else and be thinking, how can I be there for them? How can I show up and bring my best in, a, in, in order to help somebody else? That sounds like a nice segue to my, my next question. Um, I would imagine that that way of thinking, asking yourself that question, not why am I here, but who am I here for, uh, would be a fantastic trait for every quote unquote member of the Secret Society of Success to, uh, to exhibit on a regular basis. But what might some of the others be? That's a great first one, but yeah. I know there are more than, than, than just that one. Yeah. So going back to this whole idea of being ambitious, can you be in the Secret Society and still have ambition? The answer is yes. <laughs> and I learned this from Tim Cook, who's the CEO of Apple. And Tim actually came up through the ranks as COO under Steve Jobs. Mm -hmm. And when I was working at Apple, one of the things that we used to say that I just love, it really shaped their culture is excellence is the price of admission. Everything that they did was excellent. It wasn't the, the goal, the aspiration. It was the baseline expectation. So if you've ever been to an Apple store, the next time you go, look under the tables and you'll actually find something a little surprising. The cables themselves are like excellently wired and routed. It's just so clean and polished, even in a place that no one else is looking, which I just love. Excellence is found everywhere. And so, you know, the, a, a Apple is just so ambitious, chasing to create the best products available. But what I love about Tim Cook now as the CEO, the, the shadow that he is casting as a leader uh, is really, you know, kind of shaped by this response that he gave in an interview. So after the release of the Apple Watch, 
which was a pretty big moment for Apple. They released the Apple Watch, but by the time the Apple Watch had launched, Steve Jobs had passed away and, and Tim Cook had been uh, promoted to CEO. That's who Steve had really been grooming to take over. And so um, this is the first new product in a new category since Steve had passed. So after this big announcement, Tim's being asked on national television, he said, uh, David Muir asked him, is this the moment for you, the moment of your career at Apple? And just think for a second how if you're Tim, how you're going to respond in that moment, because everything in you would probably want to take the bait just to use that moment as an opportunity to just revel in the spotlight. So many of us would do that, right? Right. But what I love is Tim doesn't say that. He actually responds with, well, it's a moment for Apple. I don't really think about myself that much. Mm. And I just love that the, the humble confidence that he exhibits in just a simple response like that. He's confident enough in the value that he brings that he doesn't need to remind us all about it. Mm. And yet he's also humble enough to know that to create an Apple Watch was not credit that he should take himself because it's taken hundreds, if not thousands of, of employees to pull that off. So this idea of what if success is about giving the credit to somebody else? Mm. What if it's about recognizing every person's contribution? And um, it really reminds me of this plaque that sat on Ronald Reagan's desk when he was president. And it says this, there is no limit to what a man can do or where he can go if he doesn't mind who gets the credit. Mm, I've heard that, yeah. And so I've started to just define success as, yes, what if success is thinking, you know, who am I here for? I I think that's a beautiful start, helping others win. Mm. But it's also what I've learned from Tim Cook is, what if success is giving credit to other people? Mm. And I just think that it really sets us up to, you know, be thinking less about what's in it for me and more about kind of who am I here for? How can I help other people around me win and get a little bit of the credit? We were talking about the music industry a moment ago. Uh, and as you were talking about the tables under the tables at the Apple store that nobody sees and the attention to detail there, despite the fact nobody sees them, I, I couldn't help but think back to watching a Lord of the Rings DVD extra back in the day. But all who worked on that film and the meticulous nature which at which they went about their business and all the things they did with regard to costumes and and and, and sets and other things and the, the level of detail that people would never see or that would be seen for a, a just a, a, an infinitesimal moment <laughs> in the film. But excellence was was job one, and and so they did it anyway. And of course, it lends itself to the level of performances you get, I think, from the actors involved when you're going to that, to that level of detail. And I think about everybody who's involved in making a film and all the people whose names you would never know. You see them on, you know, at the end credits, but every one of them is kind of living out, I think, what you're, what you're talking about. And every single person in that film, in those end credits, think about this too. Those people are the best in their role mm. in that industry. So they are trying to be the best that role that they can be. Mm-hmm. And, and it, the whole thing works when everyone does with excellence the part that they have to play. You know, if you think about a concert, you need the person standing center stage for the whole thing to work. 
but you also need the person who took your ticket as you walked in, the person who even set up the stanchions to create the line to even get <laughs> you to that ticket person. You know, you need the person running concessions. You need the usher. You need the sound person. You need the supporting guitarist. Every role matters. And when we start to buy into this idea that only the spotlight matters, only the spotlight is success, I just don't buy it. And I think a lot of people are hearing this and probably nodding their head and saying, I agree. <laughs> and yet we're just being bombarded with this message that success is only this one thing. And I just want to say, is it? I, I, I just don't think that it is. Success looks a lot of different ways and it looks a lot of you know, a lot like what you and I have been talking about. We need to redefine what success is or else we're going to, you know, be navigating our entire careers feeling like we failed when maybe like Michael Collins, you made history. Sure. You, you didn't walk on the moon, but I mean, think about what that guy did. I mean, he got them to the moon and back. It's remarkable. We each need to find comfort and validation in the role that we play, whatever role, whatever seat that we happen to be sitting in on the org chart. You know, I love exploring examples of this because they're everywhere when you look for them. I think I don't think you would mind me mentioning his name, but I think of people like uh, my friend Chad Jeffers. I don't know if you know Chad or not. You and I run in some of the same circles. He plays guitar for Carrie Underwood. Uh, he's not the guy in the spotlight. Kerry is, but he does his job extremely well. But he's also uh, beginning to tinker with a YouTube channel and talking about what he does on the road and how he does it and, and what goes into performing and uh, you know playing with the spotlight a little bit. It's kind of this tension. It's it's not like you know it's not like they're mutually exclusive or it's it's one or the other. It's either or. It's 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 a it's a little bit of a tension happening at the same time, right? It absolutely is a, is a tension. And, and one thing, it's so funny. I don't know Chad, but I do know Ed Eason. And Ed is another one of Carrie's guitarists. <laughs> <laughs> so those guys are buddies. They're out on yeah. the road all the time together. But, but you're right about the tension is we live in the tension between the spotlight mindset, this unhealthy desire for attention and recognition, and living in the way of the secret society which is, I think, when we're at our best. That is the headspace that allows us to show up without needing to get the credit, without needing to, you know, the recognition, willing to do the work for the love of the work itself. And I wanted so badly, my brain is one that functions in a linear fashion. So as I'm writing this book, I wanted to be able to say, all right, guys, step one, two, three, you now have overcome the spotlight mindset. You did it. Great job, right? That's what I wanted. Mm. But that's just, I couldn't do it because it's just not true to our actual human experience. The reality is this is not a problem to solve. It's a tension to manage. Mm. And in this very moment, I am living in the tension <laughs> because it's, this is all about our headspace, right? So I'm on this podcast. What is my intention and my motivation in talking about all of this? Do I want to say all of these things so that people think at the end of this that I am great and somehow that I am esteemed or the headspace said, in, in fact, I want to operate from and that, that would be a more healthy headspace is one that is, hey, Tim, who are you here for today? And if I'm thinking about all that I'm saying and trying to help 
say something that maybe allows a listener to redefine success and find a little more contentment, whatever day that they happen to be listening to this on. Mm. And if I'm, I'm kind of picturing them and their success as my success, then we're winning. So if I am doing my best work, I get out of the way as fast as possible and make it about somebody else, help somebody else win. But we are going to all be up against this tension multiple times a day, you know? And so that is, I think, what I'm trying to do is just bring awareness that the spotlight mindset even exists in the first place. Because I I had a friend, a a guy I know named Tom House, and uh, he says, problem identification is half the solution. We have to know what we're up against before we even know to, you know, how to how to solve it or how to attack it. So um, that is my goal, helping people know there is something called the spotlight mindset, but, and, and also helping people learn, Hey, here's some ideas. Here's some other ways to define success. And, and I, I think when we acknowledge we're in the tension and then learn to navigate it, that's when we're, uh, at our best. Is, uh, is your music still available on iTunes? Heck no. I got that out there so fast. <laughs> I will tell you though, there is still, I was just looking at this yesterday debating whether or not I take it off. I played at the Bluebird 12 years ago. Oh, wow. So there's a song of me playing at the Bluebird. Uh, I played with Dave Barnes and Drew Holcomb and you know Steve Mokler. We did a little round and that's on YouTube, but everything else I like try to get rid of. Well, I, I got to go check that out before you take it down. I think that's <laughs> job one for me after this interview is over. You know, I enjoyed reading some of the stories about some of that part of your of your life and and traveling with uh, a musician at Belmont when you were going to school there and, all, and sort of just dealing with all the success that he was having and wanting to kind of like maybe some of that was the comparison game that you were playing with yourself and why isn't that me and you liked everything about him but you didn't want to like everything about him how did you get on the other side of that eventually so my dream right when I started college I wanted to be the next John Mayer. I had written a couple songs and now all of a sudden the, the path was clear for me. I'm heading towards fame. That, that was what I wanted. And so I released a couple CDs, had them up on iTunes. And I thought the best chance that I had in being successful as a singer songwriter was to come to Nashville and learn from people who had done it. And so I ended up going to Belmont University for my junior year of school. And as I'm at Belmont, these people are talking about this guy named named Steve Mokler, and we're talking about him as though he was going to be the next John Mayer, Mm. which was impossible because (laughs) I was going to be the next John Mayer. (laughs) And so I figured after a, a, a little too long, just trying to deny the fact that I really enjoyed his music. Finally, I just accepted he is really good. And if I can't beat him, then I may as well join him. Mm. So I invite him to go on this tour that uh, we ended up calling the home is where the heart is tour. And so we're playing in people's backyards and you know the, the comparison that you're talking about, I was feeling all of that. He's selling three to four times as much merchandise as I was every night, people were singing along to his songs. I, I just wasn't having that experience. Mm. So I'm sitting in the back of Steve's Honda Element uh, on this tour while he and another one of our friends who was taking pictures for us to be able to post on MySpace. 
This will kind of date the story a little bit. People even remember MySpace. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I'm, I'm sitting in the back seat and just thinking about this tension that I was feeling. I, I, I had a dream and, and I, I had this thing that I wanted, but I was not enjoying that journey. Mm. And I was reading a book around that time from Chip and Dan Heath called Made the Stick. And there was a line in it that just caught me in my tracks. It says, are you demanding or attracting attention? And I realized everything that I was doing was me demanding attention. And it, it wasn't working. I wasn't happy. I wasn't getting the kinds of results that I had wanted. And so after this tour, I'm kind of reflecting back on what was it that really gave me life that I was really good at and the logistics, the details, the coordination, all of that was me in my sweet spot. And I enjoyed that part of it. I actually found as much excitement in that as I did playing the music itself. So um, I started to just think about what would it look like for me to support somebody else as they're on that dream and journey. And so a few years later, I end up actually becoming Steve's manager and started working with him um, in a behind the scenes role. And then a couple of years after that, I started working with Donald Miller doing the same thing. And mm. I just have experienced the further that I got away from trying to be the guy on stage and, and, and step into a role and really own a role behind the scenes, play my part. I was actually loving it. Mm -hmm. And that has been just such an incredible experience because I really started to learn that success could be found in several other roles. And maybe it was a role behind the scenes that was actually really well suited for me. And mm. even to this day, yes, I have this book. Yes, I have my podcast. Yes, I'm doing keynotes. But I actually really love the work that I do now as well. I have a project that I work on. Um, and I'm in a very behind the scenes role. And I just feel at home in that spot mm. too. So I, uh, I, I, I love kind of being that ops logistics guy, uh, and, and maybe doing all the stuff, the small details that people don't see, but I just get a lot of life from. You talked about worrying of dating yourself with the MySpace reference. I'm going to really date myself here for just a second. Um, when I was a teenager, early 20 something, I, you talked about John Mayer. I wanted to be the second coming of, of Billy Joel. Yeah. Uh, you know, the singer, songwriter, musician, he could do it all, you know? And so I, I thought I was going to be that one day. That obviously never happened, never transpired. Uh, but after spending some time in radio in Indianapolis and Muncie, Indiana for a number of years, um, I ended up moving to Nashville to work in the music business. And oh, so wow. yeah. uh, you know, I did that for four years and behind the scenes and helping get recognition. I was in radio promotions, leveraging my background in radio to get recognition on you know, radio stations, get airplay for the artists, had all kinds of success. Uh, especially the first couple of years, like 26 number one songs in 22 wow. months or something like that. Now, I'm not taking credit for that. <laughs> they performed and recorded and wrote some excellent music. Yeah, but you did your part. I did my you part, know? played my yeah. role. And so that was kind of, I guess, when I think about it as you're talking, I'm like, yeah, that was kind of an example of me realizing I'm not going to be in that role, but I can be in this sort of role over here that's connected and help other folks who are doing that well to be, to be successful and get the recognition they, they deserve. Yeah. Well, I've got a couple of questions I want to ask you, not uh, directly related to the book before I do that. Anything else from the book that you want to make sure we know about that I didn't ask? I think we covered it. Yeah, I think it's great. 
Awesome. All right. Well, I always love to ask about what authors are reading, and in particular, what books have stood out to you over the course of your uh, reading life and career. Uh, what, what are some books maybe that you're often recommending to, to other people? A few that come to mind. John Acuff's book, Soundtracks, has been very impactful for me. And he talks about these thoughts that we have that just spin and spin and spin. So often our thoughts, mm. he says, some of them are broken soundtracks. We don't really even realize it, but it's damaging us more than it's helping us. And yet we just haven't replaced these thoughts with better ones. And so that book is amazing. Even just go look up podcasts of John talking about soundtracks. That's a, an amazing one. Another is a guy named David Novak, who's the um, former CEO of Yum Brands, which is the parent corporation for Taco Bell, KFC, Pizza Hut. He has a book that I love called Taking People With You. Mm. And when we talk about not needing the credit, recognizing other people, David actually grew Yum Brands from $4 billion to $32 billion by creating a culture of recognition where everyone felt like they counted and that they mattered. And David's become a friend of mine. And I've been to his office at Yum, which even though he's not the CEO, they've kept it exactly like it was when he was CEO. <laughs> but what he would do is he had a, a recognition award that he would give out mm -hmm. to team members. And he'd say, hey, I want to take a picture with you. And he would recognize a particular behavior that he felt was driving the business and moving it forward. And he'd say, I'm going to take a picture with you. You can do whatever you want with the copy that I'll send to you, but I'm going to put your picture on the wall in my office because I want to show the world you and what you bring to the table is what makes this thing run. It's what makes things happen around here. He ran out of space on the walls and started putting them on the ceiling. So anyways, love that book. But his whole thing is taking people with you. You can't do anything big by yourself. So that's another one. I'd say those two are, are pretty yeah. great places to start. Those have been some recently that have been really powerful. One more question related to uh, GDT, getting things done uh, in productivity. Something I've been geeking out over the last year is this concept of personal knowledge management. And I'm curious to know, especially as an author, when I wrote my first book, which came out in August, I was writing it in 2020, and I hadn't quite fully grasped what personal knowledge management could do for my writing in particular, and just being a better note taker, better at capturing and collecting notes, uh, organizing my notes, distilling those and adding my own unique perspective, and then publishing those, expressing those in ways that help other people. If you've got any sort of uh, tricks or tips that you go back to again and again in, in regard to that topic, I'd love to hear what, what any of those uh, would be. I read almost exclusively now on Kindle for this very reason. Hmm. And I never imagined how helpful it would be as I was writing my book, because what books are is it's just a glorified research paper. And if you flip to the back of the book, you've got so many sources from books that I had read, podcasts that I'd listened to. And so when you read on Kindle, if people aren't Kindle readers, if you highlight something, it actually stays in a database that you can go access anytime. Mm. So I would highlight and make little notes as I'm reading and then have the ability really easily to go back and reference all those. And then as I'm working on chapters, as I'm writing, I was just able to go track those quotes down so easily. I love that part of it. So that's mm. I'm a huge Kindle advocate. 
Um, but another thing I do is I spend a lot of time on podcasts. So I, I have a podcast called Build a Winning Team, but I also work with David Novak on his podcast. So that's my behind the scenes project that okay. I work on, which is really fun. He's got an incredible podcast called How Leaders Lead. Mm. And he has people on there like Tom Brady, uh, Indra Nui, the former CEO of PepsiCo. Mm. I mean, just incredible people. Former CEO of American Express, CEO of uh, IBM. I mean, just all these incredible leaders. But what I've learned from David in how he does his podcast is how much prep he does for every single guest. Mm. And so... Probably 25% of my week is researching and preparing for interviews, whether on my podcast or How Leaders Lead. So I will listen to interviews, I will read articles, and I create a notes just on the notes app on my, on my Mac or on my phone. I'll just jot down notes along the way and I just have a, a bunch. And then I kind of am using that and then I have like a Word document that I'll write questions off of as I'm kind of crafting these interviews. But I use my notes app for a lot of a lot of that. And so far it's been a system that's working for me. But yeah, I, I spend a lot of time reading and cataloging and um because I just need to pull from it all the time. So you know, I totally identify with what you're saying with regard to uh, ebooks, uh, Kindle. Um, I resisted a Kindle for years. I got one two or three years ago, and even once I got it. I rarely used it. The, the, the impetus for getting it came from my wife who said, we have too many physical books lying around. You got to do something. You got you to pare this down a little bit. Uh, but I found myself rarely using it because I so prefer when I'm in the act of reading to have a physical book. However, the, the point you made is, is, is a great one. Uh, it's so much easier to access what's important to you. I use an app, and I would recommend this to you if you don't use it, called ReadWise. Mm-hmm. which uh, syncs Kindle highlights. It can sync highlights from physical books, that you, uh, pick the, the pages of which you've taken photos wow. of in the app and highlight them in the app. Tweet threads, um, articles you've read online, podcasts. They've connected uh, their app to the Air app, which is an app that allows you to, to save podcast snippets, even the text from those snippets. Wow. And all of that can be brought together through that one app to your uh, personal knowledge management system, to a, to a central hub, to a single place. I don't leave it in Readwise. Uh, I can view it at any time there, but I actually take it out of Readwise and put it in an app called Obsidian, which is my central hub. And that's where I do all my writing and where all my notes are connected, et cetera. Wow. Um, and so Readwise is great for just capturing a lot of that different stuff. And there's other capture tools I use as well and bringing it into one central location. And all I got to do is click a button and it's all there. I don't have to go out and get it, uh, and which makes it uh, super simple. You saying that, another thing that I do as well is when I'm listening to podcasts, because that's pretty much exclusively what I do when I'm in the car. Mm. I just screenshot moments. You know, I'll just reach over my phone, hit the two <laughs> buttons and screenshot the moment with the intention of going back and <laughs> flagging those moments. And I never do, but I, I, I at least have the screenshot if I end up wanting to go back and chase some of those down. Because I'm sure they were great thoughts and quotes. You know, I just, mm. I got them in a screenshot. And you're not alone. I mean, so many people struggle with that. I mean, whether it's doing that particular act or whether it's handwritten notes or notes captured some other way, or maybe highlights in the Kindle that you forget to go back to. I've gotten to a point where 
I try to daily set aside 30 minutes scheduled time where I'm going back through what, I, what have I captured in the last 24 hours? Smart. Is it still resonating with me? Am I still getting the dopamine hit from it? Yeah. <laughs> and yep. if the answer is yes, then that's something that I want to catalog and, and, and make sure I have for, for later. If not, then I just let go of it uh, and move yeah. on. And so, so that's, that's been the game changer for me. I'm actually uh, just started last night at the time of this recording, leading a cohort of people through this process. And since writing my book, Read to Lead, the question I get more than any other is, how can I get better at note-taking? And I'm just finding that wow, more people than I ever realized are suffering from really poor note-taking skills. It's something that many of us were never taught to do. And so I'm looking forward to where that's headed because as I talk more about it, and I sound like a shameless plug here, I don't intend for it to be, but as I talk more about it, I'm finding that it's something that is nearly universal for people. Yeah. And one thing I have realized is because I'm consuming so much, sometimes I'll read a book six months from now, three months from now, you ask me what it's about. I'm like, I have no idea. So to be able to almost go back to the highlights and and I have a friend who used to work with Pete Carroll. And one thing he would do for coach is, and, and he, Pete Carroll's the head coach of the Seattle Seahawks. One thing he would do is create these four to five page summaries mm. of books for coach. And if you're reading a book with the intention of writing a four to five page summary, you're going to remember that information a lot better. So <laughs> whatever the system is, I think the, the, the hope is that we read and retain a little bit better. Yeah, and if you're not doing these things we're talking about, cataloging them in such a way that you can easily refer back to them, it's it's as if you never consume the content in the first place. Yeah. You know, that was kind of a waste of time, and we don't want that. Yeah. So let's get better at it if we can. Well, the name of the book, again, is called The Secret Society of Success. It came out in May. Stop chasing the spotlight and learn to enjoy your work and life again. And his name is Tim Sure. Tim, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. I really enjoyed the book and uh, enjoyed talking to you about the book even more. And I've, I've really enjoyed our time. And real quick, I love your book cover so much. It's oh, so thanks. great. So <laughs> thanks for having me. Fun to spend time together. Well, a couple of great book recommendations there from Tim, a podcast recommendation as well. I'll put all that in the show notes along with ways you can connect with Tim online. You'll find all of it at readtoleadpodcast.com slash 430 for episode 430. That's readtoleadpodcast.com slash 430. Don't forget to put your name on the list to be notified first when I offer and open up my next note-making mastery cohort. To get your name on the notifications list, go to readtoleadpodcast.com slash list. That's readtoleadpodcast.com slash list. When's the last time you tweaked your LinkedIn profile? Has it been recent or has it been a really, really long time? Well, either way, Donna Serdula is here next time to help us truly and powerfully optimize our LinkedIn profile. She's written a book called LinkedIn Profile Optimization for Dummies. That's next time on the Read to Lead podcast. That does it for this week. I hope to see you next time. Until then, as always, remember, leaders read and readers lead. Read.